get this set up right here. Okay. So we're going to start in the book of Mark. And what I want to start with is talking about a few things, because the first time that I ever read through the Bible was really not that long ago. I was sitting in a deer stand, and I had a New Testament. And obviously, during the entire period of a of you know deer season, you're sitting in a deer stand for a long time, and I was bored to tears. And so what I did is I took a little Gideon's New Testament, and I took it out there, and I started reading it from the front page. I read it like any other book. I started at the beginning, and I went through chapter by chapter. Well, I didn't know anything about the Bible. I wasn't raised in church. And so as I was reading through the Bible, I realized that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all seemed to be like similar stories, but it was different books. And so I was trying to figure out why are all these random stories in here multiple times, right? It doesn't make any sense if you read them just you know, in, the, in, the, in the order that they're in there. And so I, I started asking around, and I finally figured out that there, there are multiple viewpoints for the same story. You know, it's the story of Jesus Christ coming down, his, the gospel. And so uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are basically pens in the hand of God. And you know, if you go to write a paper, or if you go to, to do anything when you're writing something down, the pen that you use changes the color of the way that you write it. And so God's using different pens, and it, the message is the same, but it has a different tint to it. It has a different tone. It has a different timbre. It, it, it's just different. And so uh, it's the same story, and different things are noticed by each individual person, but it's, it's the same gospel. And some of the minor details may be different, but the major story is the same. Much in the same that if you knew somebody that caught a gigantic fish and they came after a weekend and said, hey, I caught a gigantic fish over the weekend, you go, oh, okay, great. That's a fish story, right? Uh, it was this big, obviously. It's always the biggest fish they've ever caught. No one ever saw it. But if two people came to you and said, hey, did you hear about the fish that so-and-so caught last weekend? And they tell the same story, and the fish was the exact same measurement, you know, okay, I can trust this story. It's not just a fish story. This actually happened. And so in much in the same way, God does that for us by giving us multiple viewpoints. And so he does this through the pen of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that's why we have four different accounts, because... Even in the Old Testament, you had to have multiple accounts of every story. So in Matthew, we're just going to talk about the four Gospels and the differences real quick. Matthew was a former tax collector. He was also uh, known as Levi. Now, he was a Jewish man, and because of that, uh, as a tax collector, he was like a traitor to his people. He had kind of left them in order to make money off of them for the Roman government. And so... He, uh, tax collectors were not known for taking the amount of taxes they were supposed to. They were known for taking too much. And so they would thieve, basically, from their own people. But Matthew, when he was saved, he, he wrote the, the Gospel of Matthew, and he wrote primarily to his own people, to a Jewish audience. And so he spent lots of time on genealogies and, uh, and also on uh, the fact that he was the, the rightful heir to the throne of David. You know, King David was supposed to have a son that would reign on his throne forever. Now, in order for that to happen, it couldn't be a person because we don't live forever. It had to be an eternal God. And so he's writing, talking about the prophecy that was fulfilled about Jesus. And it, actually, the key phrase in Matthew is so that it might be fulfilled because God in the Old Testament foretold that Jesus would come through the prophets. And so the fulfillment of that we see in Jesus Christ. And he actually points out the specific things that Jesus fill, fulfilled in the Old Testament. 
down to his very birthplace. So it's not like he just was some guy that read the Old Testament and was like, hey, I'm going to reenact all that stuff so they could think that I'm the Messiah. A lot of people say, oh yeah, well anybody could do that. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I can't choose where I'm born. And Jesus was born exactly where they said he would be. Luke writes to a primarily Gentile audience, which Gentiles are just anybody that's not Jewish. And uh, the key emphasis of Luke's account is that Luke was the son of man. Now, the Greeks spent most of their time trying to figure, trying to find the perfect man. And so you could see how this would appeal to them because the son of man was perfect in every way. He followed the law of the Old Testament. But to the Gentiles, the, the emphasis was more on the fact that he was perfect. And while emphasizing the fact that Jesus was fully human and felt things as we do and can therefore relate with us. Now, Luke was a doctor. And so we have different insights than we would have from Matthew, a tax collector. He shows a lot of the stories, the, the humanness of Jesus, his, his, uh, his weaknesses. And he actually, at one point, talks about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And while he's there, Jesus is praying before his crucifixion. And he knows he's getting ready to be crucified. And even his, uh, one of his disciples, Judas is going to betray him. And so he's praying that the Father, there's any other way that, that the redemption can happen, then Lord, let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done, but your will be done. Well, it says in Luke's account that he was so stressed out that he actually sweat great drops of blood. And we know from medical dictionaries and, and things like that, that that's actually a, a possible thing. You can sweat and be so stressed out that you start bleeding through your, your, uh, your skin. And so Luke points that kind of stuff out because he's a doctor. So we did see that different viewpoint. John, his audience is the entire world. Now, all these guys can reach the entire world because they're, what they're teaching is about Jesus. And he's the solution to the entire world problem of sin and the separation that causes from God. But John writes to the world for the sole purpose of convincing people that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, they might have life in his name, according to John chapter 20, verse 31. So John was the last gospel account written by eyewitness of Jesus. And the gospel account was written, this is the last one. Mark was the first one around 64 AD. This one was written anywhere from 85 to 90 AD. So there's really, the biggest gap is about, what, I can't do math, about 30 years so it's really not that far apart that these different accounts were made. And a lot of people say, well, you know, you got four different accounts, but they all contradict one another. Well, if anybody ever says that to you, you need to ask them where. Because most people that say that won't have an answer for that. They're just trying to give you an excuse. But if you look at the four gospel accounts, they always imply that, oh, well, those four guys just got together and wrote the same story. Now, if you and I were going to write the same story together, do you think that we would write different stories or would it be identical? Probably identical. We wouldn't write things that seemingly are different. We wouldn't even write about our own faults like these guys do. These guys write about when they screwed up. I don't do that. If I write a story, I'm going to make myself the hero in it. So these guys obviously had a, a right viewpoint of who God was. And so in Mark, finally, is written the emphasis on Jesus' deeds. Have you guys ever heard the phrase, do as I say and not as I do? Well, Jesus never said that. Uh, most, most men that I know say that. Like, yeah, I know I did that, but you, you're not supposed to. That's not good for you. You know, it's kind of like, 
But, but the point is, is that Jesus didn't come and tell us to do as he said, not as he did. He said, imitate me. Even in the Old Testament, he said, be ye holy for I am holy. That's what God said to the nation of Israel. And in the same way, all the guys that, that Jesus invested in, like Paul, they, they all taught the same thing. They said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. So the theme of the Gospel of Mark is actually in chapter 10, verse 45, where it says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As a matter of fact, if, if you're at liberty, liberty to do so, I would actually underline that in your Bible, because that is the theme of the book. And if ever you're reading through that book, and you're like, okay, what's the emphasis he's making here? It's on Jesus' deeds and on, on the fact that his main purpose was service. He came to serve mankind, and he came to sacrifice his life as a ransom for many, for us, for us personally. So this will help you as, you as we journey through this book. So with these four accounts, we have four-dimensional view of Jesus, and it's important. You know, I don't want just one person's testimony of a person, and they go, oh, okay, that must be who he is. I want to hear multiple accounts. It, it helps. It's like having a it's like having a stool and only putting, you wouldn't put one leg on a stool because you'd fall over. But if you have two, uh, probably still not going to stand. But if you got four, that thing, even if it loses one, it might even still hold you up. So that's what I'm thinking about. Anyway, who is Mark? Who is this writer of Mark? Some of the books of the Bible have the author written at the beginning. And so we know right off who wrote it. But Mark doesn't have that. Uh, but what we have is a consensus of people in church history that know that this was Mark because of the testimony. Mark was a companion of Paul, and he was a nephew of a guy named Barnabas, who on their first missionary journey, according to Acts chapter 12, verse 25, and 13, 13, Mark being a younger fellow dropped out of Paul's first missionary journey. Some surmise that he got malaria. Um, he was a younger guy. Paul was a hard-driving guy. Barnabas kept up. Mark was a younger guy. And, you know, it's just like going out to chop wood with a bunch of young kids. It doesn't happen. These guys get worn out. They're like, hey, can we have lunch? And you're like, no, we don't get lunch till 2 o'clock. Let's get this done because we want to beat the heat of the day. But what happens is Mark, because of this, ends up wanting to go on the next journey. And Barnabas wants him to go because he's his relative. And Paul's like, absolutely not. He... He can't hold it, you know, he's not worth his salt. So why don't we just leave him back so we won't have any hindrances? So Barnabas says, no, I think he's profitable. And so Barnabas and Paul kind of get in this quick argument, and then they decide to disagree. You know, they agree to disagree. Paul goes this way, Barnabas goes the other and takes Mark with him, trains him up, disciples him. And so he kind of gets a second chance. And the cool thing about that is even in that division, what happens is Paul goes to a different region, than Barnabas, and the gospel spreads in multiple areas. So even in that, God is sovereign, and he's able to spread his word, even when there's divisions amongst us, even if they're silly. But later on, what we know from Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, is that Paul calls for uh, Mark, and he says, hey, send, let Mark know that I appreciate him, and, and he's profitable for ministry. He kind of, in his old age, he kind of saw that he was a little rough on Mark, and he wanted to encourage him. Hey, keep going. I'm proud of you. And so... That being said, we kind of get a better idea of who Mark is. He's a younger guy. He was about 15 or so when the crucifixion happened. He also was a cohort of Peter, and so he spent a lot of time with Peter. And many believe that what happened is he wrote down the things that he didn't see, 
that Jesus was involved with, he wrote down according to what Peter told him. And so it's, even though it's kind of, a lot of people go, well, then it's not a testimony. Well, he knew Peter very well and they spent a lot of time together. And Peter absolutely knew Jesus. And so there's this testimony there and, and we get a lot more insight from it. Now, this is written to a Greek culture. And what I mean by that is, or the Romans, and, and the cool thing is, is that it's written to a culture much like ours. They weren't so interested in what you had to say. They wanted to see what you were going to do with your time. And, I, and I, when I came to the Lord, that was one of my things. I was like, okay, this is neat, church on Sunday, but what does it mean in the rest of your life? Because for my, the beginning part of my walk with the Lord, I didn't, it didn't matter to the rest of my life. Sunday morning was Sunday morning, and the rest of my week meant something completely different. I would go off and do things that I wouldn't tell people that I would do in church. And so when God got a hold of my life, he showed me that uh, according to uh, Peter, which he wrote in one of his epistles, he said that God's word contains in it all things that pertain to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. And so, you know, he teaches us how to live and teaches how not first of all, how to have peace with God and then how to have peace with others. And he makes our relationships right now. So Mark's main focus is on what Jesus did. We've been over that. And, and you'll notice a lot of transition words. Uh, things like immediately and now. And in the old King James, if you're carrying it, you'll see the word straight away. It's just a transition phrase because he doesn't spend a whole lot of time giving you a lot of flowery details. He says, this is what Jesus did. And then he went and did this. So forgive me, but I'm going to slow it down a little bit so that we can actually get a, a good view of what was happening in each of these circumstances. So, now that we've looked at the background and who wrote it, let's do it, look at the introduction. The first verse, I'm finally to the text. Verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, there's a lot there, right? The beginning of the gospel. What does gospel mean? We've heard the word. Uh, we live in the Bible Belt, so everybody's heard of Jesus. But what does that mean? What is the gospel? Well, it means good news, good tidings. And Jesus Christ coming and living amongst us is good news. Not just because of what he did, but because of who he is. He's God. He left heaven, took on human flesh, dwelt among us, and he wanted to see what we were dealing with down here. Now, did he know? Yes. But he wanted to prove and show us in his human physical body that he knew and he could relate with us. You know, I don't want a Savior that has no idea what I deal with every day. I don't want somebody that says they can relate to me and can't. You know, they've got that show on uh, something boss where the, the guy comes in and it's usually the CEO and he dresses up like, uh, like he's, you know, he, maybe it's the CEO of Taco Bell and he dresses up and he, he comes in and he works with all the coworkers and kind of tries to learn what's going on. And, and after the show, it always happens. He goes, oh, man, I didn't realize how bad you guys have it, you know. And he kind of throws him a bone, and he's like, okay, we're going to get this changed, and these working conditions aren't right. But because he can relate all of a sudden with his workers, he becomes a better boss, right? Well, Jesus, in doing this, he left heaven. He left his throne so that he could relate to us and so that he could better deal with our situation. He wanted to reconcile us to himself, but first he had to come and dwell amongst us. And so the good news is that Jesus did come, that he was the Son of God. And, but what I want to say is that many people have a problem with this, though. There are obviously those that don't take the gospel of Jesus as good news, even churchgoers. Lots of people go to church every week, and then they're like, 
yeah, I got to get up and go to church, you know, and I'm like, wow, lots of people are going to want to go to church with you. You don't even enjoy it. Well, the cool thing is, is that the Lord wants us to enjoy it. It's supposed to be something where we do get joy out of knowing our Savior, knowing our Creator. And so He wanted that fellowship with us even back in the garden. But what we did is, we, the one thing He told us not to do, was, which was eat from the tree of, of, of good and evil, and the knowledge of good and evil, and what we did was He said, we were tempted away from that, and we were like, well, maybe God doesn't really know what's best for us. And so we... Eve partook of it, and then Adam did too, and then that began the break. Next thing you know, we weren't walking with with God in the fellowship of the the garden anymore. And so it is good news, but what we oftentimes have failed to see is that with Jesus as our advocate, the judgment is taken care of on the cross. That sin that we have in us, he wants to take it. He wants to deal with it. He wants to get rid of it for us. We have to allow him to do that. But one of the things you'll find out is if you start walking the Lord, with the Lord and, and you profess this as your belief, uh, it's foolishness to those that haven't experienced it. They can't relate. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So on the other hand, there are many Christians that call it good news, but live as it's a burden. I said that. And Jesus' life of serving and his sacrifice in our place are not supposed to be a burden. What God meant in sending his son was to give us freedom. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So that's the good news. He wanted to give us rest in him. We don't have to try to be good enough anymore. He knew already, no matter what good I do, it will never outweigh the bad that I've done. And so he evened the scales by saying, I'm going to wipe all that bad stuff away. I'm going to forgive you for it. I'm going to cleanse you each time you screw up again. But what I want you to do is not be separated from me. Spend time with me. Pray. Read your word. Get to know me. Get to know the truth that will change your life. It'll it'll make things right. So Mark starts by expressing that Jesus' coming was foretold by the prophets that God sent to Israel in the Old Testament. Verse 2 and 3. He quotes from Isaiah and Malachi here. It says, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now, one thing I don't want to be negligent in addressing here is that I jumped over that phrase in verse 1 that says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That statement that was made said that he is the Son of God. And I address this because there's many people that I know, and surely some that you know, maybe even some in here that say, well, that's good. Anybody can write a book and say, I'm God, or Jesus is God, or whatever. But how do you prove it? Well, luckily we don't, or we're blessed because what happened is he didn't write a book that said, hey, I'm, I'm God and, and close the book and deal with it. He, he said, I, I foretold it. And so what we have is we have Isaiah and we have Malachi that were even 400 years apart when they said Jesus was going to come and that even that his messenger would come before him and prepare the way. Their message was that before the Son of God revealed himself, God would send a messenger before him who would prepare the way. And this messenger's message would basically be, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Basically, he'll tell them that the Lord is coming, so get ready. And that's what we preach. That Jesus is coming back, and so we need to be ready for that second coming. Now, John's specific ministry and his message was foretold by God through Isaiah, 
and through Malachi, but these guys didn't even know each other. <clears throat> Which would, uh, excuse me, Isaiah was written around 740 to 680 B.C., and puts it around 700 to 800 years before John the Baptist came on the scene. So though the messenger changed Isaiah to Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, all the way to Jesus, the messenger changed, but the message did not. So not only is the messenger foretold that would prepare the way before the king, but the messenger of the covenant is mentioned in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, in whom you delight. So this messenger of the covenant was was Jesus. He's the messenger coming to bring the New Testament. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. It reveals all the secret things that, and they weren't really secrets, they were just mysteries that were waiting to be unwrapped. They're like gifts that God left, like little breadcrumbs, so that when, when Jesus came and he started doing all these things, they go, oh, wait, this was supposed to happen. Didn't it say that in Isaiah? And so John the Baptist comes on the scene. He has a very specific ministry. His specific ministry was to come and to prepare the way for the Lord. Now, many of us will see in here that there's some parallels between what we're supposed to do as Christians and what John the Baptist did for Jesus. You know, And so John came, verse 4, baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John's not preaching about himself. He's not getting up and getting on a soapbox and saying, Sinners, repent! Although he is, but he's saying repent because Jesus is coming. He's warning them of the wrath that is to come if they don't surrender to Jesus. So this passage can also be studied in Matthew 3, Luke 3, and also in John chapter 1. And that's what I did here. John the Baptist caught the attention of the people all around him. It says in verse 5, all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And they were confessing their sins. You see, John the Baptist's ministry wasn't just to live in the wilderness, dress funny, eat weird food, and to be like a three-ring circus to draw people in. His ministry, actually some people say that people were definitely not attracted to John because of his coarseness. He was kind of a rough guy. He lived in this in the desert. Nobody wants to be in the desert. It's hot, it's dry, there's no water. It's not the facility that you want to start a ministry in. You know, if we showed up here and we were like, hey, uh, we're going to leave the air off uh, or the heat in this time of year. And we're not going to give you any coffee. We're not even going to have any lights on. Not a lot of people are going to stick around very long. It, but that wasn't his purpose. It wasn't to make them comfortable. It was to prepare them for the Messiah that would come and deal with the issues he was going to point out. He wasn't just pointing out, hey, you're sinful. He's like, hey, you're sinful just like me. But the Messiah is coming and he's going to be the answer to the problem that you have. And so <clears throat> one thing, uh, so one of the guys I listened to, had a, he, he told a story and I just stole it because I don't have any stories of my own apparently. But an atheist and, and a Scottish philosopher, the same guy, by the name of David Hume, was caught going to a series of revival meetings in the 1700s. 
His friends noticed that he had been attending the revival meetings every night, and they couldn't believe it. They asked him once, why do you go to those meetings? We know you don't believe in Jesus. We know you don't believe the gospel. Why do you keep going? And David answered them by saying, you're right. I don't believe what he is preaching. But that man up there preaching actually does. He loved to go and see the guy because the man had conviction that had nothing to do with his philosophy or his, you know, the way that he talked to people. He was the same guy everywhere. He wanted to go and see a guy that believed something enough to do something about it. He wanted to see somebody that believed enough in the Lord to actually follow him, to actually do what he was called to do. And in John the Baptist, these people that were going out to see him might have been going out there because he was kind of a wild and crazy guy. But what they found was a man of conviction whose heart burned for the things of God. And he was in tune with things and he wanted to see other people do good. He, he, he wasn't telling them that they were going to burn because he wanted them to feel bad about their sins. He was telling them because he loved them enough to tell them. You know, if you love your children enough, you'll tell them, don't run into the street. Don't put your hand on that, that hot stove. If you don't tell them, it's like you hate them. And God in the same way loves us enough to tell us, hey, your sins are going to cause destruction, not only in your life, but in others. So what I did was I looked at the passage in Luke chapter 1 to kind of unwrap this a little bit. And what I see here is the calling that John had on his life from even the time before he was born. See, his mom and dad were praying for a child and they weren't able to have one. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 13 through 17, it says, The angel said to him, to Zacharias, this is John's dad, who was a priest, by the way, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth, Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He was going to be a Nazarite from the womb. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit of, and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, if you look back at Elijah, if you get a chance later, he dressed and he preached similar to John the Baptist. The similarities between John the Baptist and Elijah are a study in and of themselves. They, they wore the same clothes, they ate the same food, and they were very fiery men. They had a heart set apart for God. Now what God called John to do was to prepare for the way for the one who was coming as the true light of the world that could be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. You see, before a person can receive the Savior, before he can receive Jesus, oops, they must first realize that they're in great danger and that they need saving. So John's message was different for individuals because everybody's in a different spot. You don't deal with the same things I do, and I don't deal with the same things you do. That's why... When people look to a religious leader to be the answer to their problems or their, even the place where they would go and confess their sins, they're missing out because our high priest can relate to our problems. He was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. And so he's there and he can relate. And so he's not pointing to himself like, I'm your answer. He's going, hey, Jesus, he's your answer. Go, go learn of him. Uh, Psalm 119 says that, um, how can a man young man cleanse his ways, but by taking heed according to your word. 
It's talking about God's word, and that's why we're spending all our time in it tonight. But John the Baptist's message to everyone in Matthew 3, 2 said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he had another message, and it's really the same message, but it's worded different to every person. What does repentance mean? He said he was preaching a baptism of repentance. Now to the pious and the religious crowd, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he preached, and this is going to sound really graceful, brood of vipers. Now I don't know about you guys, but I'm not a big fan of snakes. But I wouldn't call someone a snake. John the Baptist called somebody a snake, and he called the religious leaders of that day, he called them snakes. He said, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, he's not telling them don't come. He's saying, get right. He's saying, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Don't come and tell God that you got something to offer him. Let him know that you, you're wrong, that you, that you do have sin. Be honest about it and bear fruit worthy of repentance. You say you've repented to God and that you want to be right, then do that. The fruit in your life will show. So he says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. See, they were the religious leaders and their message was, hey, you, don't, hey you, don't, you can't tell us that we're sinners. I've gone to church my whole life. That was their life. They spent all their time in the temple. They spent all their time reading the word of God to get to know it. Well, let me tell you, being in church your whole life will not save you. And, and that's his message. He's, he's basically telling them, I don't care if you're raised in church, your heart's not right. And God wants our hearts to be right. He doesn't care about our outward actions. Saul came back from battle one time and he, he had brought all these sheep and, and he had plundered and he brought all the money that they got out of this city that they plundered in 1 Samuel. And when he showed up, the, the prophet said, what, what are you doing, Saul? And he said, oh, I've kept all these sheep and everything so that I could sacrifice them to God. And what he told him is he's, God said to leave all that stuff there. Leave all the spoil. Leave it. He, did, he disobeyed God's word, and so his worship was worthy of nothing. And so Jesus addresses this same thing. But what I wanted to say is that because he approached the pious religious leaders this way, it caused all the other people that were listening to go, wait a minute, they're supposed to have everything right in the God department. What are we supposed to do? We must really be wrong if they're wrong. And so it started causing them to examine themselves. And because of that, each group came to him and said, okay, I'm supposed to repent. What does that look like? And so we get different tastes of that in Luke. In Luke chapter 3, to the tax collectors, John taught in Luke chapter 3, verse 13, when the tax collectors asked John, teacher, what shall we do? He taught them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. See, they had this issue where they, they like to take more money than was theirs. Imagine that. People greedy for money. Well, these tax collectors would come in and they'd say, uh, oh, you need to give me so much. Well, they didn't really owe that much in taxes, but they were kind of skimming some off the top for themselves. They were being dishonest. What does fruit worthy of repentance look like for a tax collector? Be honest. Don't take people's money. Stop thieving. To the soldiers, John taught... You know, when they asked him, what shall we do? Uh, Luke chapter 4, uh, excuse me, 3 verse 14. What shall we do? He said, don't intimidate anyone or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. He said, hey, stop trying to make something of yourself by bringing people in and trying to look good and be content with what you're getting paid. That was what repentance looked like to them. 
Each of these cases shows that when they get right with God and repent of their sins, they, they bridge that gap and they're reconciled to God. And so in doing that, they're reconciled to man. Their relationships become right with the people that they know. So John's ministry is fulfilled in the preaching of Jesus coming and then ushering him in, proclaiming the need for repentance and for the remission of sins, which just means the removal, the forgiveness. Take a whiteboard and wipe it clean. Gone. You're done. Your debt's paid. And so in the same way, that's what Jesus was coming to do. But in order to do that, you have to first realize you got some sin, that your whiteboard's dirty. It's disgusting. And so even in their good works, their, their hearts were wrong. So he even had a message for Jesus to him. And I think this is interesting because we often think, well, I, I'm not telling Jesus anything. But his message was a message of humility because Jesus shows up at the Jordan River and he says, hey, you need to baptize me, John. And what did John say? He didn't go, well, I am your forerunner, so I guess I will. He wasn't proud of it. He said, wait a minute. You're coming to me to be baptized? You should be baptizing me. You're the son of God. And so he came with humility. So even the messenger was humble. That's what it should be like. Now for those of us, excuse me, the message was in John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His message was the truth of what Jesus was and who he came to be. He wasn't meant to be anything other than that. And so now for those of us who have experienced life-changing relationship that Jesus offers, our ministry is really no different than John the Baptist. We're supposed to be living a repentant lifestyle, not thinking highly or more highly of ourselves than we should, and then also point people to Jesus. When they go, hey, you go to church, you must be really good. The answer is, no, no, I'm not good. That's why I go to church. That's why I need Jesus. He forgives me. Every day I screw up, but I get to ask my high priest my loving Father, repentance. I get to confess to Him my sin. And then 1 John 1, 9 says that when we screw up, when we confess our sins to Him, He's righteous and He's just in forgiving us and cleansing us of all unrighteousness. And that's, that's a very freeing thing because then we no longer have to walk around thinking we got to hold it all together. He's the one that does it. Just like He holds the world together. He's, hold, he, he's wanting to hold us together. And so... Verse 9, finally, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Verse 11, then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, let me ask you a question. What is baptism? The word simply means to identify with. There are lots of ideas about the word baptism. Literally, it just means to identify with. It makes no earthly sense to take someone, to dip them in the water, pull them up, and go, Woo, you're baptized. What does that mean? Well, it's basically, it's a symbolic action of being cleansed of our sins. And it's also a symbolic action of what God's already done. He's cleansed us once we confess Him. We call out to Him and say, Lord, I need forgiveness. Please come into my life. But then... Repentance comes, but when we dip under the water, he's cleansing us. It's just proclaiming to everyone that's watching that we've been cleansed. And then it's an outward action. It's an Ebenezer, word from the Old Testament. It just means something we can look back to and remember something. It's a touch point. And just remembering what God has done. Now, there's a few of you in here that were baptized the same day I was. And it was a neat day because I finally understood what baptism meant. And so my actions proved that I just wanted to be obedient to God. 
And he blessed it because after that time, it's not like I got this super fuzzy feeling all the time. It was just that I had a touch point to go look back and go, that was the day that I was obedient to God the first time. I'm able to look back and go, it didn't make any sense to me, but he asked me to do it. And since he's my savior and also my Lord or my master, I'm going to do what he asked me to do. Not only that, but it looks like here, John actually submitted himself to this same action. He, he did it. So Romans 10 verse 9 through 13 says this, and I'm saying this because a lot of people believe that it's baptism that saves you. Well, the thief on the cross, Jesus said he would see him in paradise. So salvation doesn't come through baptism. And actually Romans chapter 10 verse 9 through 13 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the good news. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto, unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the, the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, it is this calling upon the Lord that saves us. The baptism is just an outward testimony of what God has already done. And you see here in the same message, excuse me, the same passage that God testifies to the legitimacy of his son. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this, but if you look at Luke and the way that Jesus's life starts out, there's lots of people that know him that probably thought he was an illegitimate son. You know, oh yeah, the carpenter's son. Yeah, they weren't really married yet. You know, and you get the mouthing and the bickering. And they're like, well, yeah, he's truly the son of God. You know, I, we had a questionable birth. And, uh, but, you know, so the, the cool thing is, is that when Jesus is baptized, it's a testimony that God is involved in his three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Son being submitted to the Father, the Father speaking from heaven to him, and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. So it's cool because the different uh, Gospels actually kind of show that in different ways. They show it from his perspective and others. But the cool thing is, is that they're all involved. And so it testifies to the legitimacy of his son. Now think about this just for a second. Jesus is the son of God. God the father is his father, right? And look at the way he deals with his son. Look at the way he encourages him. Jesus begins at this point to serve his father by serving man and walking amongst man. And what, Jesus, what the Father looks down and says is, you are my son, and you I am well pleased. This is a good note to earthly fathers. He's showing us how to be a good father. You know, telling our, or showing our sons by action or our daughters that we're proud of them is one thing, but using words matters. What my parents say to me matters. I got a birthday card yesterday, and in it, I almost glazed over it, but it said, we're proud of you, son. That means a lot to me. You know, and so in the same way, God does that for his own son. And he also shows us how to be fathers. His life will not be an easy life, Jesus. And actually, one thing else to notice about is when Jesus' father says to him, I'm well pleased in you, Jesus has not yet done one miracle or one work that the crowds have seen. He hasn't done anything. He's just saying, I'm proud of you just for being my son. And so it's a pretty neat thing. To those who have never surrendered their lives to Jesus, maybe this is the first time you've considered it. 
Maybe you're like the tax collectors and the soldiers and you're recognizing that, hey, maybe I'm not right. Maybe I need to deal with this. But what shall I do? Well, turn from your rebellion against God, bow down to him, call him Lord, mean it, and ask forgiveness, and then go and sin no more. That's what he told uh, one of the ladies that he had an encounter with. And don't leave tonight without getting someone to pray with you. You need somebody that's going to know, hey, I, I made a confession tonight, and, I, and I, I just want somebody to hold me accountable. It's a, it's a key piece. And to those of us that know him, may, may we be like John the Baptist and proclaim to him that, excuse me, may we proclaim the hymn as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May we proclaim Jesus. May we be pointing people to him. May we not consider ourselves so highly that we forget that he's the man and we're not. And turn from rebellion against God, excuse me, but may we proclaim him in word and in deed as Jesus did. Now John was humble in the sight of Jesus because he saw himself as not worthy to even take off Jesus' shoes. And that was what most got me about John the Baptist. He, he wasn't too proud to say, hey, I've got this cool ministry, but Jesus is way better. I want to take a minute and just turn right to uh, Philippians chapter 2. This is what I love about Jesus. He doesn't just love us enough to say, hey, I love you. Uh, he loves us enough to do something about it. And this passage was taught this morning in Parkland in Farmington, and so I, it just touched me in a way that I, I thought it needed repeated. Verse 5. He's, excuse me, Philippians 2, verse 5. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth, and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I read that passage because it touched me this morning as I remembered. What I, if you don't leave with anything else, I want you just to see that Jesus is coming on the scene, and He is fully God, and He's fully man. Fully God in that He's the King of the universe, and He stepped down into humanity. Fully man in that He's put off His throne, he's t he stepped off his throne, took off his um, royal garb, you know, he's taken off his crown, and he's come down here and been with us, but the way that he enters the world is not the way that we would enter the world if we were the king. He enters in humility and meekness, and he enters to serve us. Let me tell you that until God serves you first, you can't serve anyone, you can't do any good unless you're serving him. And so, in like manner, I just wanted you guys to consider, are you a servant of God? Has He served you first? And if that's the case, does your life bear fruit worthy of repentance? Uh, i got to confess, there's often times where I turn around at the end of the day and realize that I've said I was sorry about a lot of things, but I haven't repented to God. Do you realize that when we sin, it's not just against a person. First and foremost, it's against God. And so I guess I would just encourage you guys tonight, be humble in God's sight, 
James says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And what you'll find is that uh, my favorite proverb, and I always go to it, Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6 says, um, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. He'll give you guidance. And so just consider that tonight, and uh, just want to thank you for your time. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to gather tonight to look at your son. I pray that in something that I said tonight, uh, people were encouraged and uh, maybe humbled. Uh, But Father, more than anything, that you were just glorified. Thank you for the attention of your people. Thank you for the worship earlier. Pray that as we fellowship tonight that you bless our conversations. Thank you for allowing us to be in this place. It looks like it stopped raining, so thank you for that as well. But Lord, I love you and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.